Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to our Friends of Europe Frankly Speaking podcast. Uh, today, it's with me, uh, Jamie Shea, uh, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe for Peace, Security and Defence, and uh, one of our regulars, uh, my colleague in arms, Paul Taylor, also Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe for Peace, Security and Defence. And I don't really need to remind you, uh, dear viewers, that Paul is also former diplomatic correspondent of Reuters and a columnist for Politico. Well, uh, Paul and I are delighted to be back with you, but it's time to get back to business and particularly focusing on our favourite topic, which is the war in Ukraine. So I wanted to begin today uh, by asking Paul what's been going on in the six weeks or so since uh, you last heard our uh, commentary. Uh, has it been more of the same? Have there been significant changes or turning points? Uh, We're going to mark, sadly, uh, one year of the war in Ukraine in just a couple of days' time on February the 24th. So I know that the question on everybody's mind is, where are we uh, and where are we going in the future? So, Paul, can you kick us off today by helping us sort of look back in terms of what happened while uh, we weren't commenting? Uh, and uh, where do you see things going? Uh, are we sort of sitting down now, uh, regrettably, for a long war of attrition? Paul. Well, Jamie, I think uh, indeed the, the, you know, the, the, the most significant developments in the war over the last couple of months have actually arguably been off the battlefield and not on it. Uh, it's settled down. It's, it's moved from being a blitzkrieg, which failed, to a Ukrainian uh, flash counteroffensive, which was pretty successful, uh, in, in particularly uh, in, around south of Kharkiv and uh, in, in recapturing Kherson, um, to a zitzkrieg. Uh, a, a war of, you know, a static war, a war of attrition. Um, and, uh, you know, the Russians have been, uh, gone back to, you know, almost World War I tactics of trench warfare, uh, massive artillery barrages, um, trying to wear uh, the Ukrainian arm, army down and using, of course, um, the Wagner Group um, uh, military company, um, mercenaries, if you will, uh, as very often as their shock troops with very, very high casualties. Uh, as far as one can tell on the Russian side, uh, very hard to tell much about casualties on the Ukrainian side because there seems to be a conspiracy of silence about that. Um, off the battlefield, I think the most significant developments have undoubtedly been the agreement by uh, a number of Western powers to provide tanks, uh, as well as a lot of other equipment, air defense equipment, uh, ammunition, uh, and longer range um, missiles as well uh, to Ukraine. And that, I think, in turn reflects um, perhaps a surprise for some people, the extent to which European and transatlantic unity has held firm. Um, a lot of people thought that it would start to crumble in winter as this went on, as prices went up uh, around the Western world because uh, of the energy uh, dislocation caused by the war and by the sanctions. That hasn't happened. On the contrary, um, I think that the Europeans um, and the Americans are more united now, uh, or as united as they were at the start of the war. There's been a huge amount of media fuss, uh, um, particularly beating up on Germany um, uh, as the 
recalcitrant, reluctant, uh, always late, always slow uh, Western country that really needs to take the lead and get out there and get those leopard tanks out there. Um, and I think that's very ahistorical. I think it ignores um, you know, what is a very historically fraught decision for the Germans. It ignores uh, the domestic politics in Germany and the checks and balances which exist in uh, Germany's constitution. German uh, chancellors are less powerful uh, in, on these matters than American presidents or French presidents. Um, uh, and also, I think it's just, you know, German bashing is, is always fun in the, uh, in the English language media. But the reality is um, Germany, by the way it handled this, has kept the alliance together because it has uh, brought the United States into the provision of tanks as well, which wasn't really on the agenda in Washington and has shown you know, all for one and one for all. Paul, thanks for that. Uh, we'll move on to the EU because, uh, as you well know, as a regular commentator on EU affairs, there was this high-profile uh, EU-Ukraine summit last week in, in Kiev uh, with uh, the head of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and the head of the Council, Charlie Michel, plus uh, uh, assorted commissioners and the EU high representative, uh, Joseph Borrell, all travelling to, 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 to Kiev. Um, the press sort of presented it as a bit of an EU cold shoulder uh, for Ukraine in, in terms of not setting a date uh, as President Zelensky has called for to uh, begin the accession negotiations uh, and not accepting Zelensky's idea of a faster track. And some media have said that you know, although the EU offered other things, uh, the uh, results were rather modest. I mean, is this your view? Do you think the EU is missing some great historic opportunity, historical opportunity here to really sort of fast track Ukraine and maintain the spirit of uh, the people uh, in these difficult times? Uh, uh, are we being sort of too pernickety about, you know, meeting all of the EU requirements? Or, or do you think that basically the EU is following a sensible policy at the moment and that what the EU is actually doing for Ukraine is maybe more significant than seems sometimes to emerge from the, the media reporting? Look, the, uh, the EU and the United States jointly are holding Ukraine up. If, if they hadn't, it would have collapsed despite the bravery of the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. Um, but at the same time, the Ukrainians have raised some unrealistic expectations. And it's not uh, uh, this, there comes a time when those uh, unrealistic expectations collide with reality. And that time I think was last week at that summit um, where the European Union smothered uh, Ukraine in, in, in love with their presence, with their uh, declarations of support. Um, but they tried to explain that joining the EU is a long and complex process. You have to uh, adopt the entire body of EU law. You have to reform uh, your institutions. You have to have the institutional capacity. You have to have the justice capacity. You have to have achieved things in the fight against corruption and so on. And that partly because of some quite difficult experiences with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe that joined the EU in 2004 and 2007, the EU is now insisting that there has to be a, a track record, uh, a, a proven track record of reform um, from all candidate countries. And no, they can't make an exception for Ukraine 
because of the war. And in fact, the war makes it harder for the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian authorities, the Ukrainian parliament maybe, to, to uh, actually adopt and implement all of this EU law they're going to need to do. So there is no fast track. That's just the reality. There's no shortcut to EU membership. There are other things that can help Ukraine in this long, hard slog, and they will get all the help that they can. Um, so the EU, what the EU's tried to do is to provide sort of, as it were, lots of intermediate goodies, um, like last week's um, decision to grant Ukraine free uh, mobile roaming uh, in, uh, across uh, throughout Europe. Um, that, that these, things, these are things that make Ukraine's European future tangible and credible to ordinary Ukrainians. Next steps are that the Commission has to report on, on the conditions of uh, Ukraine's EU accession process in its regular enlargement report in October. Um, it won't be ready before, I think. Um, and then a decision will come about whether and when to open negotiations. It's imaginable that that decision could be taken before the end of the year, but opening negotiations is just the start. There are countries in the Western Balkans that opened negotiations a decade ago and have still not got very far. So then it really depends on Ukraine's ability, capacity. There's also a problem, we have to admit it, of the EU's ability to absorb Ukraine. It's a big country. It's not like a small um, Balkan country with four or five million people or, or less. Um, this is a country uh, with, with a population of 40 million. It's a very large agricultural producer um, admitting it's uh, uh, allowing in its, its uh, agricultural produce tariff-free, which has already happened as a gesture of support to Ukraine during the war, is, is squeezing European farmers and causing complaints as well. So it won't be easy. Um, but, the, you know, the commitment to stay the course with Ukraine, mm -hmm. I think, is there. And we'll see it again uh, this week if, as has been leaked in Brussels by the European, by European Parliament officials, uh, President Zelensky makes a visit to Brussels, only his second trip outside of Ukraine after his visit to Washington. Washington, yeah. Um, and, you know, you expect, you'll expect to see him uh, cheered in the European Parliament, welcome to a, the European Union summit at the end of this week. So there's lots of political support, there's financial support, but membership is going to take a long time. But let me ask you a question. You know, we, we, we've heard all this news about Ukraine to receive uh, new military equipment. Uh, will it get there on, in time? And will these tanks and armoured personnel carriers, do you think, make a decisive dis uh, difference uh, on the battlefield. And well, would I, I, fighter aircraft change the picture for that matter? Yeah, but thanks, Paul, for those questions. I, I certainly think that, obviously, the Ukrainians urgently need uh, that armour, uh, first of all, to protect themselves, because, uh, as you rightly said a moment ago, uh, we don't have their battle casualty figures, but uh, reading between the lines, it's clear that this fighting around Bakhmut and Solidar that you referred to, Paul, that's been going on, has been taking its toll of Ukrainian troops, not just of Russians. The Russians may have lost more, but the Russians are losing sort of conscripts who uh, have just joined the fight with little experience, whereas the Ukrainians uh, are losing sort of battle-hardened 
quality troops, if I can put it that way, that they can you know, ill afford to lose. So they definitely need the protection. And uh, as the Russians, uh, whatever the speculation about a spring offensive, have also dug themselves in uh, with better defended lines of fortifications, <laughs> they're definitely, you referred to World War One, going to need heavy armour to break through the, the barbed wire in the trenches if they're to have any hope of, uh, of advancing. So I think, yes, this is definitely uh, good news. But you're right. I mean, number one, uh, will these uh, extra assets arrive on time, particularly if the Ukrainians are serious about a spring offensive or to block a Russian offensive uh, in the spring? Uh, that's an open question, because um, yesterday, for example, uh, it was reported that Chancellor Scholz, uh, in frustration, was phoning his Dutch and uh, Finnish and other European counterparts saying, look, you know, we, we've committed our tanks. Uh, you have indicated that you are willing to send yours, but you haven't made a commitment yet. So in, in terms of actual numbers, we don't know really where we stand. It, it's remarkable that by far the largest contingent uh, will be coming so far with 31 tanks from the United States with the, the M1 Abrahams, uh, which the American didn't want to commit. Uh, you know, when you look at the actual numbers from the, the European side, uh, they're, they're quite small. So you need a large number of countries to sort of join the Leopard 2 consortium if the Ukrainians are going to get anywhere close to the 300 uh, that they say they need. Um, and 600 uh, armoured personnel carriers and infantry fighting uh, vehicles. So far, the numbers indicate, that at least if the Ukrainians are correct, that about 120, 130 have been committed. But you also know, Paul, very well that many countries like Portugal have acknowledged, and Spain, that their Leopard 2s uh, have been mothballed, uh, need to be repaired. Uh, maybe they have to go to Germany first, uh, you know, to the German uh, defence contractors like Kraus Maffei Wegmann or Rheinmetall to be refitted before they can be sent on. Then, of course, as you know, Paul, there are the questions of maintenance, of uh, supplying uh, ammunition. Tanks break down very easily and therefore uh, spare parts uh, will be key. So uh, the question is whether this sort of consortium of 12 European countries uh, that has been mooted to look after the sort of supply, the maintenance, um, the sustainability of, of the tanks, whether that uh, will be formed and really will work uh, optimally. Um, the two other things, uh, you rightly mentioned air power. Um, that's true. I mean, if you're a strategist and you've read enough books about warfare, Paul, to know this, um, armour uh, requires air superiority, tactical air superiority, a control of the skies uh, to be operationally effective. Uh, and if the Ukrainians aren't able to achieve this because they simply don't have the aircraft, um, then it's an open question um, whether the tanks uh, and the other uh, pieces of armour will be a war winning uh, asset. Uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, just how quickly this uh, uh, aircraft issue is resolved. I mean, my sense is that we will have to provide aircraft, that there are probably interim solutions like Slovak SU-27s um, uh, that are still uh, in the NATO inventory or German Learjets or other kinds of aircraft that could be easier for the Ukrainians to operate and fill the gap. Uh, I would at least start the Ukrainians now on training, pilot training for F-16s like Poland did in anticipation 
in with Leopard 2 tanks uh, to at least uh, prepare the, the ground. That doesn't prejudice a political decision. But yes, I, th I think you know, all wars were won when one party gained air superiority over the uh, other party. That's been a doctrine of Western strategy for, for decades. Um, the second thing is that uh, if you remember the early stages of the war, Paul, you saw hundreds of carcasses of burnt out Russian tanks, you know, T-72s, older generation T-62s and so on, um, Russian armoured personnel carriers. So obviously these things were highly, highly vulnerable uh, to you know, shoulder fired missiles and mines and, and so on. Uh, the Leopards are top generation. Uh, they first appeared on the scene in 1979. The Leopard 1 tanks that the Germans say they will send are, are 1960s vintage. So one question I think for any strategist is, you know, if the Soviet stuff was so vulnerable, what's going to make you know these Western tanks less vulnerable? Uh, uh, how can they be employed in a way that you know, guarantees their survivability, their functionality? I mean, clearly, the key here is going to be the West's ability to train Ukraine in what's called combined arms operations so that they integrate these uh, assets behind some kind of winning strategy and they don't simply leave their tanks as sitting ducks. Um, one, I'll finish on this, but one interesting piece of news that I picked up last week, at least in, in terms of air defense, the, the Russians are, uh, sorry, the Americans are, please, please forgive me, that was a lapsus. The Americans are uh, now developing a software which can integrate the uh, uh, various uh, air defense systems that different countries have sent, Iris T's, Patriots and so on, uh, Hawks, uh, into a sort of single operational system that will certainly make them effective. So that kind of, so the software, if you like, needs now to catch up with the hardware in terms of combined uh, operations. And I think that's going to be a, a big challenge going uh, forward as well. So uh, yes, uh, salute the tanks, uh, but they are not a panacea in themselves. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that there's an awful lot more training going on than, than we're being told about. I mean, the European Union came up with an extraordinary figure last week. Um, Joseph Borrell announced in, in, in Kiev that uh, the EU had already trained uh, 15,000 uh, Ukrainian uh, soldiers and that they had a plan to train another 15,000 this year, um, which would, if if accomplished, make the EU the biggest trainer uh, of, of any, uh, you know, more than any uh, individual country. Um, but again, the question, it begs a little bit, little bit the question of how long is the training, what are they being trained in, um, and how uh, applicable is it really uh, to the kind of high intensity warfare that now needs to be conducted. Well, I think the spring, you know, when everybody's anticipating a, an upsurge in military activity, although, as you rightly said, Paul, the war has hardly sort of uh, uh, stopped uh, during the winter months. Indeed, you know, the Russians have been uh, very much on the offensive, but the spring will probably be the moment of truth when we see, you know, who coming out of the winter, Ukraine with all of this military support from the West, uh, Russia having used the winter, of course, to regroup as well as push the Ukrainians back uh, in. The Nets can be in a position to you know, go further towards places like uh, uh, Sloviansk and 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 and, and, Kram, uh, 
at Kramatorsk and all the rest, you know, who really is going to come out of this, out of the racing blocks fast. But Paul, uh, I need to ask you one thing in the time we have. Uh, I, I've been reading some pretty gloomy reports in the media this past week in, uh, about the non-effectiveness of Western sanctions against Russia. You know, the Russians have found workarounds. I, I suppose this was predictable. You know, they found new customers for their uh, energy. Uh, they getting the Iranians to build drone producing plants for them in Russia itself. Uh, you know, Lavrov is in Mali this week, you know, having been in South Africa in recent days. So the Russians also seem to be conducting quite a, um, a, a visible sort of of diplomacy to to try to gain friends and sympathizers uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, in the rest of the world. So, uh, what what do you think is is the staying power? Are the sanctions really working, but we just don't know about it? Or or do you think we're in a situation where the sanctions have been overhyped and Russia probably has the means to keep this going for years to come? Certainly longer than probably the Ukrainians would hope to be able to keep it going, particularly if that Western support uh, does start to uh, ease off uh, in 2023 or possibly next year in 2024. Well, you're right, Jamie, that, you know, um, the, the hit to the Russian economy has been uh, less than ha was expected when the sanctions were initially adopted and even as they've been ratchet, uh, ratcheted up. Um, the Russian economy last year, according to the IMF, shrank by 2.2%. Now, you've got to compare that against the forecast growth before the war of 3% last year. But it's a, even if it's only a 5% uh, overall contraction, it's still smaller, I think, than, than uh, Western countries had hoped. And a lot of that is, of course, because Russia is so dependent on oil and gas exports. Um, and the, the oil and gas prices were blown sky high by the war. Um, and therefore, you know, they're, they, they're earning more per barrel. The EU and Western countries are trying different ways uh, both to wean themselves off Russian energy, which has been a remarkable success. I mean, the, 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 part, the share of Russian gas in, uh, in EU uh, energy consumption has gone down from 40% 40, uh, 40 before the war to below 9% now, um, and it's still falling. But um, yes, we've still got uh, Russian gas in our uh, storage, and when we run out of that, we, we, the, the challenge for us in the West in Europe is to be able to replenish it in time for next winter um, and hope that, you know, this winter, which has been fairly mild so far, uh, doesn't take too big a toll. Um, the, uh, the, but I think the, the, the hit to the Russian economy uh, and indeed to the Russian uh, military machine uh, is a long-term hit. Um, it's about the denial of technology. It's about the exodus of skilled, skilled technicians. Uh, who um, were, you know, building a high-tech economy in Russia uh, as on top of the traditional uh, um, minerals, hydrocarbon sectors. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's true that Russia has not, uh, the Russian economy has not collapsed. They've been able to do some import substitution at home. Um, China is, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, been providing some um, technological um, substitutes for the, for the Russian uh, defense industry. Um, but the, the loss of access to key Western technologies, um, microchips and things like that, uh, will be a long-term blow, as will the loss of uh, skilled young manpower. And so 
Um, you know, Russia may be facing another lost decade, but I agree that the, the hit may not be sharp enough to make a huge difference in the war, except that Russia will find it harder to, to uh, re replenish the precision-guided uh, uh, munitions, which it's basically run out of. Um, and that, you know, there's, you're seeing improvisation on the Russian side, just as you are uh, on the Ukrainian side. Um, on Russian diplomacy, yes, you know, they're, they're getting, they're trying to get back on the front foot. They, they were very isolated last year. Um, they're going around trying to pick off the countries uh, in Africa, which either have fond memories of Soviet support for their struggle against colonialism, um, or feel that Africa provides security and economic assistance with fewer strings attached than the EU, um, and uh, or, or where you know European intervention, such as in Mali, which you mentioned, um, has failed to produce a, a great improvement in the security situation, and they're now turning to. Uh, to, to the Wagner group again, this, the same people who are fighting uh, in uh, Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, all of that, I think you'll see, um, you know, the Russians are trying to tee up a summit with China where Xi Jinping, the president, would come to Russia this time. Um, and that would be a big boost again, uh, politically for Russia if it happened. I think the Chinese, however, are still being careful about what they supply um, to uh, Russia, they know the Americans are watching. They don't want to be hit by secondary sanctions. Well, I, I think that you know clearly moving forward, we've identified today this issue of the the staying power of uh, of the West. Paul, you pointed out the cruciality of that support in keeping Ukraine uh, uh, alive, um, and what factors might be that could undermine it. I mean, it's been, as you rightly said at the beginning, surprisingly strong and sturdy. Uh, thus far. Um, uh, you know, I think the way in which President Zelensky moved very quickly and decisively uh, in recent days to, to fire uh, ministers, officials, provincial governors uh, who might have been were implicated or possibly implicated in corruption is a sign that he's wary that, you know, any bad news of Ukrainian malfeasance could risk uh, particularly with the US Congress, with the enormous sums of money it's allocated to Kiev, it could risk that, uh, you know, that, that support. Um, so he's clearly sort of nervous about that. Um, the Republicans, it's difficult to, to call sometimes because on the one hand, there are noises about you know, checking on the funding and limits to the funding. But Republicans traditionally have been very supportive so far of the transfers of, of, of weapons. In Europe, I'm hearing you know, more voices from opposition leaders, as well as some in the armed forces, uh, pointing to the consequences of robbing Peter to pay Paul. In other words, leaving NATO uh, naked uh, by stripping it of... Uh, some of its uh, armour to, to send to Ukraine. I, I suppose as long as there's the perception that it's a, a good thing to do because the defence of the West is the defence of Ukraine, and if Ukraine is successful, NATO's task of collective defence is easier. I suppose for the time being, that narrative is 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 taking hold. But my sense, just in closing today, is, is that, like everything, it depends upon perception of the strategy working. And that it's worth it because we're seeing success. And the Ukrainians were certainly in that position at the end of the year when they regained the territory. You referred to that. And they seem to be on the advance. And mighty Russia was no longer invincible. Russians could be beaten. 
uh, that was a great encouragement. You know, the strategy is working. So one more heave, let's keep it going. But my sense is that in 2023, um, the West is going to face a pretty crucial choice. Uh, do we really believe that Ukraine can win? And even at risks of escalation with Russia, we're going to go all out, all out in giving Kiev everything it needs to be uh, successful. There's no way back, if you like, or, or will, if the fighting gets bogged down and stalemated, will Western countries maybe decide to cut their losses? Um, think of you know, looking after themselves and shoring up NATO uh, and maybe keeping some of that military equipment uh, back and pushing Kiev towards peace negotiations. So my, se my sense is that 2023 is a year in which much can happen and practically anything could happen. But anyway, some concluding thoughts from me. But Paul Taylor, um, once again, uh, it's always great to be in a conversation uh, with you on the podcast. Um, next time round, we will uh, host uh, uh, the ambassador Ambassador of Georgia to the European Union to widen our perspective in terms of how uh, all of this is affecting uh, Georgia at the moment. Paul will join me uh, for that. That's next week, but uh, it's great to be back. Uh, look forward to many more podcasts. But again, thanks very much to Paul and his analysis today. Thanks to you, uh, faithful uh, viewers and listeners. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, back very, very soon. But from Brussels and from uh, Saint-Rémy-en-Provence, uh, it's goodbye from Paul and goodbye from me. That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.